Boker Tov. Well, you don't speak when you're spoken to? I just said good morning in Hebrew. No, 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 no. I said Hebrew. Boker Tov. Try that. Not broken toe, Pastor. B-O-K-E-R-T-O-V. Try it again. Boker Tov. What I literally said was morning good. Because remember, in English, we read left to right. In Hebrew, you read right to left. So we speak one way, they think the other. Boker Tov means good morning. And uh, try it again. Boker Tov. Now, when you get to heaven, you can greet Jesus in the morning, since we're going to speak Hebrew forever. Say shalom. Say it twice. One shalom's a greeting, two shalom's a salutation. You see somebody in Jerusalem where Judy and I have lived for the last 19 years, we say shalom. Have a conversation, we depart. Shalom, shalom. You can tell whether they're coming or going real easy. One, they're coming, two, they're going. By the way, don't you dare say shalom, shalom until I get finished, if you don't mind. I will uh, let you know and give you a signal. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, and I'm thrilled and honored to be able to be here with you this day. Pastor wanted to have a special emphasis on Bible prophecy, and I have been privileged to be invited to be the one who would teach this day, and we're looking forward to the time. My wife is with me. Honey, uh, would one of you men just step out there? I think she's in the hall. Ask her to step in here. I've got to show off my wife. She is my wife of 50 years. And uh, come in here, honey. There she is in the back. Yes. She, uh, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary in September of this last year, going into our 51st year. Had a marvelous time. Our children surprised us. They gave us a big uh, a party, a celebration party. All of our family was there. They even invited all the members of my, our wedding party to be with us. Wasn't that fun? They are getting old, those people. I don't know why we brought them. But uh, anyway, we just had a marvelous time. Everything was going so great until one smart aleck guy walked up to my wife, and he asked her a stupid question. You've been married to him for 50 years? Now, it was a 50th anniversary. See, hello, party. Then he asked another question. If I'd have been there, I'd have cold-cocked a rascal. He said, how in the world did you stay together with him for 50 years? Well, she, he, he thought he had her, and she looked up and said, well, that's easy. My husband's an itinerant preacher, which means he's gone half of the time. <laughs> but she didn't quit there. She said, now that would give us 25 years, and when he's home, he sleeps a third of the time. That gives us 17 years. He works a uh, third of the time. That gives us about eight years. And she said, I send him to the store a lot. We've actually been together two and a half years. <laughs> so you can celebrate a 50th wedding anniversary that way. Well, we're honored to be here, and we're looking forward to the time together. Pastor did mention that this evening uh, we're going to start. This is a voluntary meeting. The obligatory meeting starts at 6 o'clock. The voluntary meeting, you can come, if you will, and be with us for Prophecy Q&A. Any question? related to prophecy, you want to ask me, we'll be thrilled to do it. Do me a favor, come and sit right down here in these first couple of rows, if you will. Come and sit, come and sit down here, please, God bless you, because other people will be walking in, I don't want them to interfere, so you sit here. I promise at the end of the 25 minutes of Q&A, I'll let you return to the seat where you've been seated for the last 15 years, but uh, if you will, come and sit with us here, and let's uh, spend some time, and then it's six o'clock, we're going to have a service as well. And this evening, I'm going to be talking about what the Obama administration in the United States has been doing to the Jewish people. President Obama met with Prime Minister Netanyahu three months ago. It was in a closed-door meeting at the White House. For the first time that I know of when any national leader would come and visit with the President of the United States, there was no press conference after the meeting. The reason is that President Obama took Prime Minister Netanyahu to task and applied pressure. President Obama told Prime Minister Netanyahu, those settlements are going to have to go. We're talking about a half a million people 
in 200 Jewish settlements in the area of Judea and Samaria. When I say the words Judea and Samaria, you know that has a biblical background, and historical background that dates back 3,500 years ago when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. The capital of the Jewish people at that time for a 350-year period of time was in the middle of Judea and Samaria. Well, the President of the United States, along with the leadership of the European Union and Russia and the United Nations, have put pressure on America, uh, excuse me, on Israel to pull out of this very sacred piece of land, a land that they believe God has given them. Because of that, we are on the verge of having a second Jewish state in the Middle East. And by the way, that's what Bible prophecy calls for. I'm going to study the Word of God with you. I'm not going to give you experience. I don't have my prophecy ideas driven by current events or experience. I have my understanding of what's going to happen in the end times driven by the Word of God. And so I want to do that, present it to you this evening. I hope you can be here at that particular time. In the service this morning, I'm going to continue my study of what I have been doing with the students at the Word of Life Bible Institute. I've had the privilege this last week, and I will this next week as well, of teaching students from all over the world that are gathered up in Owen Sound and at the Bible Institute, the Word of Life Bible Institute. John Hopper has come along with us. He's one of the staff members. You'll see him at our table. They have a little display outside for Word of Life. I believe in the Bible Institute. I believe in training young people. We have four children. All four of our children are graduates, not of this particular Bible Institute, uh, but uh, the one down in the United States. I teach down there. I teach up here. We go back home into uh, Tennessee to uh, fix our suitcases up anew, and we'll head off to uh, Hungary, and I'll be teaching at the Bible Institute there. And so God has opened up some unique opportunities for us with these young people all over the world. And let me just say, I would think that uh, some of us who have uh, children and grandchildren might consider exciting our children about studying God's Word. Before you do anything, to understand God's will, you need to know God's Word. And this would be a great way to do it. With uh, maybe one exception, uh, there are some great Bible teachers out there, and uh, they are some of the greatest in all the world. So I I do recommend to you the Word of Life Bible Institute. You know, I love being in Canada. And let me tell you why. I love being with Christians in Canada. Because in the last, I guess, eight months, Judy and I have been in eight foreign countries. We've been in 28 of the states in the United States. And I find a commonality between those of us when we get together as Christians. doesn't matter what our borders are, what our language is. And most of the time I speak through an interrupter, uh, an interpreter. But, uh, uh, you know, because we know and love Jesus, there's a special family relationship. And I'm honored to be here with you, looking forward to the time we can spend studying the Word of God. Now, as I said, we're going to go to the Revelation. So take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Revelation. A pastor has been uh, encouraging me to speak to some of the issues that we are faced with today in our world. And if we just will take a moment and think about it, you pick up any newspaper, listen to any telecast or any radio program with the news reports on it, you're very aware of what is going on in our world today. Uh, Just recently, the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was in Belgium, Brussels, Belgium, there at the headquarters, the European Union. She said that one of the most historic events that has happened in the history of the world took place in November of last year. And she was referring to uh, the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty, bringing the European Union together into one solid political, economic, governmental operation, probably the most powerful in the world. And uh, in addition to that, Uh, She was talking about the election of the new leadership. They elected the uh, prime minister of Belgium, Mr. Van Rompuy, as the president of the 27 member states to lead the European Union into the future. Uh, They indeed are a very powerful political organization, uh, more powerful, I believe, and will soon be than the United States. They have a a greater gross national product, etc., than the United States. So it's going to be interesting to watch them. 
And then, of course, uh, the prayer of the pastor talking about the people in Haiti. I was just down a couple of weeks ago in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was speaking in a church down there. And um, I know you're probably thinking, how did the Holy Spirit lead you up here if you were in Florida? I don't know. But anyway, uh, I was down there, and one of the gentlemen, one of the missionary leaders was at that church that day who had been in Haiti. They arrived on the Monday afternoon before the earthquake struck on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, they were there for the earthquake, and they had been able to get out, and, but they had been ministering with the people there. You know, the Bible, Jesus Christ, when he was speaking on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, he made the statement, in divers' places in the last days, you'll see an increase in earthquakes. And we're seeing that certainly happening. You think about the war situation. I was speaking about war down in Columbus, Georgia, which is a southern town, but it's a military town. And I, at that time, made the statement that there were 53 wars going on in the world someplace. A colonel in the army there came up to me and said, Dr. DeYoung, I'm going to have to correct you. I said, what did I say wrong? You said that there are 53 conflicts going on in the world. I just graduated from the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And they are the people that know, and they say that there's 157 conflicts going on. Uh, so the wars around this world are just increasing almost on a daily basis. It's unbelievable. You look at Afghanistan. You look what's going on in Iraq. Uh, two days ago, there was a bombing of uh, the Shiites as they made a pilgrimage to Karbala right near Babylon in modern-day Iraq, so that is not settled. Uh, what is Pakistan, the only Islamic nation in the world with, that is powered with a nuclear weapon? Uh, what is happening in, uh, in many of the other countries of the world? It's unbelievable what is going on at this time in history. So it does behoove us to understand what is going to happen. I had the privilege not too long ago, of speaking at the Pentagon, which is the military headquarters uh, in the United States. I walked in, and I was going to address a group of generals. They were going to have a Bible study, and they asked me to come. First of all, it encouraged me that generals at that relationship and height in their control and power uh, were going to have a Bible study. As I looked at them, I said, gentlemen, today you're going to make decisions affecting tomorrow. And then I said, today... You better understand what's going to happen tomorrow. I think that principle is applicable, not only for the generals in any military organization, but each of us in this room. Gray heads, senior citizens, teenagers, middle age, whomever. All of us in this room will be making decisions today affecting tomorrow. We better understand today what's going to happen tomorrow. And I believe the greatest book to do that is the culmination of all of Bible prophecy. There's 17 Old Testament books that are designated prophetic passages of Scripture. And then the one New Testament book, the book of Revelation. But the truth be known, one in every three pages is Bible prophecy. There are 1,188 chapters in the Word of God. 392 of those chapters are Bible prophecy. Sometime, if you want to see how much is Bible prophecy, put your thumb on the first chapter of the book of Lamentations and your index finger on the last chapter of Revelation. If you pinch between Lamentations chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22, you'll have 392 chapters of the Bible. You'll have 42 books of the Bible. 27 in the New Testament, 15 in the Old Testament. That's how much is Bible prophecy. God wanted us to know. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, He breathed into ancient Jewish men, not of their will, but of his will, to tell us what was going to happen. One of those men that he breathed into was John the Revelator, who was a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. He'd been the pastor at the church at Ephesus. That church was started by the Apostle Paul, Acts 19. Then John came along late in life, probably in his 80s or maybe even to his 90s, because the book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D., while John was a prisoner put there by the Roman Emperor Domitian on the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos is an island off the coast, the western coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea. It's three miles wide, six miles long. Interestingly, I was out there a couple of times. It has 365 churches on it, one church for every day 
of the year. I don't know why so many churches, but that's where John was when he got the message. So go to your Bible, go to Revelation, and let's go to chapter 4. I need to use these microphone stands to illustrate something. But I want to show you something about what is going to happen in the future. And what I'm going to lay out here, I'm going to use two microphone stands and a lectern to give you a, a, a road map through eschatology. What I mean by that, I want to show you how everything's going to unfold. Let's say that the exit sign was 6,000 years ago. That's when Jesus Christ created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is in six 24-hour days. I did not misspeak. I said 6,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, in six 24-hour days, created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. How do I know that? Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, By him, by Jesus Christ, were all things created. And when I go to Genesis chapter 1, if I believe that in Genesis, uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, as I do believe John 3, 16, which says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If I believe those two passages of Scripture to be literal, I have to believe Genesis 1 is literal. When Jesus Christ, and I wrote a, I do a little um, daily um, devotional. It's on my website. You can receive it if you'd like to. Give me your email address. We have 10,000 people get it every day. Uh, We'd be happy. But last night, I was looking at the book of Exodus chapter 20. You know what it says in verse 11? In verse 11, God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses said this. In six days I created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is, and on the seventh day I rested. Therefore, make the Sabbath holy, and you work six days, and you rest the seventh day. You know what I figured out? I figured out that God wasn't telling them to rest 10 million years. He was talking about a 24-hour day. And so I figured if he said rest one 24-hour day, I created everything in six 24-hour days. I do take it literal because I am going to teach literally what the Word of God has to say about prophecy. So I think that should settle that. Six 24-hour days, 6,000 years ago. Jesus Christ comes at 4,000 years after creation to the earth, takes on human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. 2,000 years after that, we come to what is represented by this microphone stand. And that microphone stand represents the next event in God's calendar of activities. Jesus will shout, the archangel will shout, the trumpet of God sound, and we're out of here to be with him. The rapture, the next event in God's calendar of activities. By the way, the rapture has not taken place yet. I can guarantee that. Pastor and I are still here. Should we disappear, you got a real problem. If the rapture does take place, Brother Steve, would you just cut the lights off, turn the electricity down and go, rapture. Oh, I'm teasing, Brother Steve, you'll be with it. By the way, I've got to honor that man. He did a great job this morning, didn't he? Oh, that's great. I like... You see, I got a special empathy with you, Steve. I used to be a music man before I got my heart right and started preaching. But uh, no, I used to be a music man. And I love, I like watching other, I like the way you have that choir. Man, they're eating. Of course, I know how you do it. When you look at that choir and go, glory to God, they're scared to death, man. You show that fist. Yes, sir, we're going to sing right. Did a great job. Anyway, the rapture of the church, the next main event in God's calendar of activities. It could happen at any moment, the rapture, we leave here. After that, there's a space between that and the next event. This is a seven-year period of time. I'll show you in the scripture what I'm talking about. But This is a seven-year period of time. It's called the tribulation, the time of testing. The rapture's first, the seven years, and then we all get on white horses, come back to the earth with Jesus Christ on a white horse, and this is called the revelation, or the return of Christ to the earth. By the way, I uh, look out there and see some of the gray heads who are a little bit concerned about having to get on a white horse and come back. Don't worry about it. Don't have any fear. If you've never ridden a horse, it doesn't matter. 
When we get on those white horses, we're going to have resurrected, glorified bodies. They cannot be hurt. So if you fall off 18 times, you won't get hurt. Just get on. Let's ride. We're coming back with Jesus Christ, okay? The rapture over here, the seven years, and then the return of Jesus Christ. After that's going to be another period of time. This is a thousand-year period of time. And uh, this thousand years is when Jesus Christ will be king of kings and lord of lords. He will be on a throne in the city of Jerusalem. How do I know that? Because the Davidic covenant, God promised King David, I will put one of your sons on his throne in a temple on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 33 says, as long as the sun, the moon, and the stars are in heaven, I will not break my promise to King David. And so there will be a kingdom here. The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the Ancient of Days, that's a name for God, will give the Son of Man, that's a name for Jesus Christ, a dominion, a kingdom shall be forever. And the first installment of it will be the thousand-year period of time here on the earth. This microphone stand represents the next event, which is the great white throne judgment. It's going to be a terrible time of judgment. Not deciding something, but simply sentencing those who've rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus will be the judge. The text tells us in Revelation chapter 20, whose name was ever, not ever written in the book of life shall have to be cast into the lake of fire. Now, by the way, how does that determine? It's not determined by God. It's determined by every individual. All of us have a free will. You can freely decide to receive Christ or you can freely decide to reject him. If you make that decision of your own free will, God is not a mean God. He's simply accommodating and taking care of your wishes. Because you reject him, you have to go to the lake of fire. No scare tactic, no trying to be mean, simply a statement of fact. And we're all adults, so we should be able to understand. And then after that, eternity future, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. I told you to go to chapter 4 of Revelation because I want to now show you what I have just laid out in front of you as a visual. And I use these three items to give you a visual so you can understand what we're talking about when we look to a certain passage of Scripture. Chapter 4 of the book of Revelation and verse 1. Notice what it says here in the very first sentence. After this, I looked. After what? Well... If you go back to chapters 2 and 3, it's the messages to the seven churches. Jesus gives an angel these messages. The messages are to be passed along to John the Revelator. He is to take them to the seven churches. John pastored the church at Ephesus. He may well have been able to start the other six churches or for sure had a circuit riding ministry among them. But he was given the responsibility of taking the message to the seven churches. These churches also are descriptions, the same characteristics of church age and that period of time between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church. So what the text is telling us, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand Bible prophecy. It simply says, after this, after the church age. Now look over here a moment. This is the rapture of the church. And so the church is over here before the rapture takes place and then all the prophecy starts to begin. Let me tell you this. There's no prophecy that must happen before the rapture of the church. All prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church has been fulfilled. The rapture is the next prophecy to be fulfilled and after that every other prophecy in the word of God will be fulfilled. And so we're here after these things. After this, I looked and saw in heaven. Now notice what it says. I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Now I had a problem with that the very first time I read it. Steve, I play trumpet. I have me a box Stradivarius trumpet. You know, it's a handmade trumpet. Uh, well, I mean, let me back up. I said I play trumpet. I used to play trumpet, Steve. <laughs> that lip, if I puckered up and tried to put it to the mouthpiece, would slip to the bell of that trumpet. But when I could pucker right and get a sound, that trumpet could make a nice sound. Tell you what, never heard it talk to me. This is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, which would be three books in the Bible, four books actually, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation uses a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. It's not a fairy tale, not an allegory. It's a symbol. 
Remember uh, when you studied, and we'll look at tonight, the dry bones. That was a symbol. And when you go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, he said, I saw something among seven golden candlesticks and had seven stars in his right hand. Those are symbols. But apocalyptic literature will be interpreted by other apocalyptic literature. Now it says, a trumpet talking with me. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Remember that? Jesus shouts, archangel shouts, trumpet God sounds. And then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 51, uh, verses 51 to 53. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, we shall be changed. And so it's telling us here, there's going to be a trumpet sound, and John sees it as it talking to him, come up hither. Jesus is going to shout. Is that the words he'll use? I don't know. Possibly. Those same words are used in another passage of Revelation, chapter 11, when he calls the witnesses that have been resurrected to be with him in the heaven. Come up hither. Well, there it is. This is the rapture of the church depicted in the book of Revelation. Now, that being the case, look at the last phrase in verse 1 of chapter 4. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Again, real simple. Doesn't take a prophecy scholar to understand that. I'm going to show you what's going to happen after the rapture. Now, please look up here again a moment. Here's the rapture, chapter 4, verse 1. After that is chapter 4, verse 2, all the way over to chapter 19, verse 10. That's 16 chapters, detailed information about what's going to happen after the rapture before Jesus Christ comes back. By the way, the word church is used 25 times in the book of Revelation. Before chapter 4, it's used 19 times. After chapter 19, it's used 6 times. During these 16 chapters of the 7 years of tribulation, the word church is not used. Hello? Either God forgot to put us in the tribulation period, or we're not supposed to be there. I think it's the latter. We're not supposed to be there. I'm going to describe in just a moment what is going to happen. And we're going to see those events that are surfacing right now that would give us indication the stage is set, all the actors in place, the curtain's about to go up. But before it all happens, the rapture does take place. We'll get back to that in a moment. Go to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. I want to show you something here in chapter 19 that is going to take place as well. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. We're going to come back with Christ. He's going to ride a white horse. He's coming out of the heavenlies. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 14 tells us we're riding with him. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. How do I know that's us? Because of what we're wearing. That's our wedding garment that we still have on. We'll have been married to Jesus Christ. How do I know it's the wedding garment? Chapter 19, verse 8. And to her was granted, talking about the bride of Christ, that's us, the church, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness or the righteous acts of saints. So it's going to be us to get on those white horses. We'll have been in the heavenlies for a seven-year period of time. The a marriage supper of the Lamb will have been completed like any Jewish marriage celebration. It lasts for a seven-year period of time, or seven-day, excuse me, seven-day period of time, but it'll be seven years during the tribulation period. When we celebrate with Christ, then we mount those white horses and come back. This is called the revelation of Christ or the return of Christ. Look at chapter 20, verse, 11, uh, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that old dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and bound him a thousand years. Well, that talks about the thousand-year period of time I told you about. Look at the last phrase in verse 4 of chapter 20. The last phrase. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, please look up here again. This is the thousand-year period of time that's talking about Satan is bound for the thousand years. You and I rule and reign for, with Christ for a thousand years. See, you have the rapture, then a seven-year period of time, the return of Christ, the thousand-year kingdom. Now I go to chapter 20, verse 11. Chapter 20 and verse 11, the last of the three main events in this timeline through eschatology. Verse 11. 
And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven and fled away. The great white throne judgment here where Jesus is the judge casting all of those who've rejected him in the lake of fire the second death. Then eternity future, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Let me tell you what I just told you. I just told you that the first three chapters of Revelation, one, two, and three, happened before the rapture of the church. I also told you the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, 20, 21, and 22, happen after the return of Christ. That helps us to know the 16 chapters between the first three and the last three, those 16 chapters are the detailed information about that terrible time of judgment yet to come. You see that approach to studying Revelation? First three chapters before the terrible time of judgment. Last three chapters afterwards, the 16 chapters in the middle. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Tonight, you have to study, if you're going to understand Revelation, you have to study it chronologically, not numerically. Now, most preachers, when they teach the book of Revelation, it takes them, you know, several months at least, up to a year, maybe more than a year. If you'll come back at 6 o'clock tonight when they give me my opportunity to speak, In the first three and a half minutes, I'm going to teach you the book of Revelation chronologically. I can do it in three and a half minutes. If you don't believe that, come tonight. I may even try to do it in 45 seconds. Be here, 6 o'clock tonight. Before the Super Bowl, you're going to see a super athlete teach the book of Revelation in three and a half minutes. By the way, I want to tell you something else. Anybody hear about 2012 and the end of the world? I'm going to get right in the face of the Mayan calendar. The end of the world is not December the 21st, 2012. I don't care what Nostradamus says or anybody says. In three and a half minutes, I'm going to disprove Nostradamus and the Mayan calendar. Tonight, hope you can be here. And then I'm going to teach about those two Jewish states. Anyway, let's get now to this seven-year period of time. What's going to happen in here? If I can show you in just a few moments what's going to happen during this seven-year period of time, then we can understand how close this rapture is. Go to verse 1 of chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 1. I can't hardly see the clock, but I think it's right at 12 o'clock. I'll keep you posted on the time. I'm going to quit as soon as I get finished. Now, do me a favor. Don't get up and walk out. Man, that irritates me to death. Really, it does. A guy got up and walked out the other day. Where are you going, man? (laughs) I shut him right down. Where are you going? He said, I'm going to get a haircut. I said, going to get a haircut? Why didn't you get one before you came in here? I didn't need a haircut before I came in here. (laughs) I'm not going to go that long, so just relax. And let me tell you something else. You know what those restaurants that you're probably going to go eat dinner at, you know what they do? They keep the food from Saturday night. They serve it Sunday morning. I'm serious. You don't think they throw it away, do you? Well, I've got an idea. Let's let the Methodists go over there and get that old food. We'll get there for the good food when they put it out, okay? Just sit back and relax and enjoy the ride. Have you got chapter 6? Chapter 6 is the beginning of the tribulation period, the seven-year period of time. Let me tell you this much. In that seven years, there are 21 judgments that get progressively worse as you go through the seven years. There's three sets of sevens. There are seven sealed judgments. That's in chapter 6. There are seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8, 9, and 11. And there are seven vile judgments, the last seven before Christ comes back, in chapter 16. I'm not going to touch all of that. I just want to touch four topics very quickly here. And the first one is this first judgment. Look what it says, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb, now that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb. He is bringing this judgment. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. You may at first blush say, hey, that must be Jesus Christ. He comes on a white horse. Well, true, Jesus Christ does come on a white horse. But look back up here at my illustration. Jesus Christ comes on a white horse over here. That is preceded by seven years of terrible judgment, preceded by the rapture of the church. And so we're talking about a judgment that happens soon after the rapture of the church. This is an individual who tries to replicate Jesus Christ. Thus he comes on a white horse, has a crown on his head. 
Jesus will come wearing a crown, has a bow in his hand. Notice he does not have any arrows. This individual comes trying to be like Christ, and he establishes peace, albeit a pseudo-peace, at the very beginning of the seven-year period of time. In fact, the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, and he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, And that starts the clock ticking on the seven years when that peace treaty is confirmed in the city of Jerusalem. Who am I talking about? The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8, he's called the little horn. In chapter 9 and verse 26, he's called the prince that shall come. In chapter 11, verse 36, he's called the willful king. In the book of Matthew, Jesus on the Olivet Discourse referred to him as the false messiah. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, he's talked about the one who will walk into the holy of holies, and he's the wicked one, the son of perdition. In the book of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, he's called the beast out of the sea. But the man you may know him as is in chapter 2, verse of uh, 1 John, chapter 2, where he's called the Antichrist. And I believe the Antichrist is alive and well on planet Earth. Do you remember when I started talking about the current events that are unfolding? Let me tell you something. Hillary Clinton was right on target when she made the statement from Brussels, Belgium, that historic events had happened. She said, decades from now, we will look back to November at what happened in the European Union. On November the 3rd, they ratified the Lisbon Treaty, which is somewhat of a constitution. All 27 member states, finally, Czech Republic, President Klaus, ratified it. Then on the 19th of November, they elected two leaders to take the 27 member states, the European Union, into the future. Mr. Van Rompuy, who was the Prime Minister of Belgium, was made the president of the 27 member council. And then Baroness Catherine Ashton of England, London, England, was made the policy, foreign policy chief, probably the more powerful of the two positions. The European Union gelled and became a powerful political, governmental, economic operation. I had always thought that they were going to name the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, Tony Blair, as their leader. He was too much of a personality, a power player in the world today. So they elected a pragmatic politician to gel it. But then I started studying the scriptures And I noticed that the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7 and 24 come together. They gel. That's representing the revived Roman Empire. And out of those ten horns comes the little horn, the Antichrist. And I revisited Tony Blair. Why did I look at Tony Blair? Oh, Tony Blair converted to Catholicism four years ago and has a relationship with the Pope. Tony Blair, he heads up a nonprofit foundation, foundation of faith. He's an adjunct professor at Yale University in New England. They're speaking on how to bring resolution to world conflict through religion. Where's old Tony now? In Jerusalem. What's he doing there? He's the peace envoy for the quartet. United States, European Union, United Nations, and Russia. He said four weeks ago in Jerusalem, we will have peace in the Middle East in one year, and I will bring it. Wow. The Antichrist has a relationship with Rome. He brings resolution to world conflict through religion, and he does establish peace in the Middle East. You're probably saying, hey, Dion, You think Tony Blair's the Antichrist? Watch my lips. I do not know. (laughs) Is that as plain as I can make it? But here's what I do know. Listen to me. Tony Blair is doing everything the Antichrist will do. He'll be headquartered in Rome, Italy for the first half of the tribulation. He'll bring peace to the Middle East. 
and he'll bring resolution to world conflict through religion. I'm not God. I don't know if Tony Blair is the Antichrist. I do know he's a perfect prototype and helps us to understand there's one who could be exactly what the Antichrist is going to be. That's the first judgment. Go back to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given unto him that sat thereon to make peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Absence of peace on the earth? What does it mean? War! As I said a moment ago, according to the War College in Carlisle, 157 conflicts going on. All of Europe is aflame in war. Excuse me, all of Africa is aflame in war. Much of Europe is purged on the possibility of getting involved in another war. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq. Do you hear? Israel, the Gaza Strip, Fatah, Hamas, the two factions of the Palestinian people. They're killing each other. Israel, I'm going to talk about it tonight. They're on the verge of a civil war. Not Jew against Arab, Jew against Jew. This world is perched on war. There's going to be, as Saddam Hussein called it, the mother of all battles, the battle of Armageddon. That's when Jesus Christ comes back. But look here. We're over here right after the rapture. This war is talked about in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, and the book of Psalm, chapter 83. Please excuse me, I don't have time to run through them all, but let me just name the players who are going to be involved according to the scriptures, not according to my understanding of geopolitical activities, according to the scriptures. The first nation to make a move will be Syria, Daniel 11, verses 40 to 42. Secondly will be Egypt, verse 43 of Daniel chapter 11. Then you go to Ezekiel chapter 38. Magog, chapter 2, uh, verse 2, rather, of chapter 38 of Ezekiel. Meshach Tubal, verse 2, verse 6. Gomer Tagarma, that's modern-day Turkey. If you don't believe that, look it up on an ancient biblical map. Asia Minor was divided into four parts in biblical times. Meshach Tubal, Gomer Tagarma, modern-day Turkey. You come down to verse 5, Persia. Until 1936, there were three countries we know in this world called Persia. Today they're called Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Iran still speaks the Persian language. Then it says Ethiopia. That's Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan. It says put or Libya in your translation. That's modern day Libya. You go to chapter 83 of the book of Psalm. It says in verse 6, the Ishmaelites. That's modern day Saudi Arabia. Then it says Tyre. That's modern day Lebanon. Hello? Have we heard of any of those nations? All perched this week, Tuesday afternoon. The defense minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, stood in Herzliya at the conference there, and he said, Syria had better come to the negotiating table to negotiate peace, or we're going to go to war. Next afternoon, Wednesday, foreign minister of Syria said, If we go to war, we're going to take it to Israel's home front. We'll attack the cities of Israel. Thursday, the foreign minister of Israel made this statement. If we go to war with Syria, we'll wipe them out. The saber rattling is going on. And Syria, as I stand here, has 20,000 soldiers perched at Israel's northern border. Bashar Assad said, we're taking the Golan Heights. We'll take it diplomatically or we'll take it militarily. And the Bible says Syria makes the first move of this alignment of nations. That's where we are. Oh, by the way, when does it happen? When Israel is dwelling safely, a peace treaty confirmed by Antichrist. Tony Blair said, within one year. Go back to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. 
Just be patient with me a moment. I'm just about finished. Two more little items here. Verse 1 of chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise, talking to John the Revelator, Rise and measure the temple of the God, and the altar and them that worship therein. You understand what that says? It's going to be a temple. Please look up here a moment again. Here's this illustration. The rapture of the church. This is the return of Jesus Christ. Right here in the middle, there has to be a temple standing. Because the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, the Antichrist walks into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, sits down and claims to be God. Lucifer, when he became Satan, said, I will be worshipped in Jerusalem, Isaiah 14. He's going to be worshipped here. So there has to be a temple there, but there is no temple in Jerusalem. Let me remind you, I may have said this to you before. Walked into a yeshiva, a place of learning for Jewish young men, like a seminary. The rabbi's name was Nachman Kahana, seated at his computer studying the Torah. I said, Rabbi, what do you use that computer for besides study of the Torah? First five books of the Old Testament. He said, uh, I have a database. I said, a database of what? He said, of every male Jew that's qualified to be a priest. Well, that got my attention. I said, why? Because, see, I know you need 28,000 priests to operate the temple. He said, because we've called them all to Jerusalem to study the priestly duties. <laughs> and for what? We're going to put up a temple. Wow. Now, I'm a Baptist, but I'm a Baptocostal. And I could almost start running just at that point in time. Man, I was getting loose. I said, well, wait a minute, man. What about the implements, you know, the furniture you have in the temple to operate it? Like the Mizrach. The Mizrach is a pitcher-shaped item made out of pure gold and pure silver. It doesn't have a base on it. It has a point. The reason it doesn't have a base, you can't set it down. The blood would coagulate. The priests have to keep carrying it. It's pointed so they can spread it over the altar. He said, we have 4,000 of them already made. They're in storage. The menorah. He said, we've got the menorah. They used 100 pounds, not 100 ounces, 100 pounds of pure gold to form and make the menorah. It's on display at the western wall. I said, what about the harps? King David wanted harps played, 4,000 of them with the Levites playing them when the temple was up. He said, go to number 10 King David Street. Went over there, making Shoshana Harari. A couple that moved from Vermont to Israel. He was a carpenter. He made the very first harp in Israel in 2,000 years. When the Jerusalem Post reported that, an old rabbi came in and held it. Cried as he was holding this harp against his chest. Shoshana said, why are you crying, rabbi? He said, because the Talmud, extra-biblical Jewish writing, says when a ten-string harp shows up in Jerusalem, it's the time for the coming of the Messiah. All 4,000 harps are made. They've selected the Sanhedrin, the 70 wise Jewish scholars. I met recently with Hillel Weiss, who is the professor. Weiss is the spokesperson for the Sanhedrin. He said they have petitioned the Supreme Court of Israel to do the first sacrifice in 2,000 years in April on the Temple Mount. They selected the high priest, Nachman Kahana, Go to my website, you can see him being fitted for the priestly garments. And in fact, they told the priest, they gave him all their garments in a box with a note on top. The note said, when you see the Dome of the Rock come down, open up this box, put your priestly garments on, and go to the Temple Mount. The temple will be erected. The temple, I've documented everything. I said, they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. They got the ashes of the red heifer, every single thing. Documented on that video. Go to one more place, chapter 18. And I'll close with this, chapter 18 of Revelation. I'm just hitting the mountain peaks through Revelation. I could tend spend days teaching this. Look at verse 1, chapter 18. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. Notice Verse 2, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen. Babylon, Babylon the Great has to fall. May I have your attention here just a moment, please? In the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, Babylon, the literal city of Babylon, 
It's on the shores of the Euphrates River, located 58 miles southwest of downtown Baghdad. Saddam Hussein, before he was taken out, spent a half a billion dollars, $500 million, refurbishing Babylon. Babylon is alive and well. Prime Minister Maliki of Iraq is from Babylon. It's never been destroyed. It was built first 4,500 years ago, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, when Nimrod built it. We read about it in the days of Daniel. He went there to live. He was trained up to be a wise man in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Babylon, the empire, fell, Daniel chapter 5, 539 B.C. But the city never fell. How do I know? Ezra chapter 7 The scribe Ezra, a Jewish scribe, living in Babylon, 75 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, makes his way back to Jerusalem. I read secular history. Alexander the Great comes to power over the Grecian Empire, headquarters in the city of Babylon, where at 32 years of age he dies. That's 200 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. I read the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Peter, following the command of Jesus, go to the uttermost parts of the earth, goes to Babylon, builds a church, and he says, all the saints in the church in Babylon salute you. Babylon is alive and well. It's never been destroyed. The United States military has been charged $700,000 for damages they did to Babylon. And they're paying the Iraqi government because they messed up the Ishtar Gate which Saddam had refurbished. Babylon will come to power. It will be the international, economic, political, governmental headquarters for the Antichrist in the last three and a half years. An economic power. If you're going to be able, if you're in that period of time, to buy and sell, you have to have the mark of the beast on your forehead. What does that mean? 666? I don't know. It's a computer chip or a tattoo? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say it's an identification mark to be able to buy or sell on your forehead the back of your hand. The book of Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17 says you've got to have it if you're in the tribulation period. How in the world could somebody make us put a mark on us to identify so we could get food or sustain life? I got an idea. Why don't we have a worldwide economic crisis? So the world leaders will come together, G20, and say, what we need to do is put a global economic structure in place so we'll never have another crisis like this. They're meeting in Canada as we sit here speaking right now, determining that out west. And that stage, oh, by the way, the last thing that happens before Jesus Christ steps back on the Mount of Olives. Babylon is destroyed. Revelation 18, verses 10, 17, and 19. In one hour, Babylon is destroyed. Been paying attention? I said the rapture happens. The second coming takes place. Seven years in between. The last thing to happen is Babylon is destroyed And Jesus steps back. Before that, they put up a temple in the city of Jerusalem. Before that, the alignment of the nations comes against Israel. The Islamic world is wiped out. Before that, the Antichrist appears. Only one thing must happen before Antichrist, the alignment of the nations, the arrangements for the temple or the aggression of Babylon, only one thing must happen. And we're out of here to see Jesus. Two questions. We're so close to Antichrist, the nations coming against Israel, the temple standing in Jerusalem, and Babylon, the world headquarters. How close could... We're so close to that. How then ought we to live? Father, 
you're awesome. Your book is awesome. It's amazing. It's articulate. It's authoritative. It's accurate. And as we've taken a few moments to look at your book this morning, we've seen a divine description of the days of destiny that seemingly are describing our days. Father, people in this room, they may not have understood everything I taught about prophecy, but I would imagine they got the bottom line. Jesus is coming. I pray you help them prepare for that with heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. You must be prepared for that event. The next event on God's calendar of activities, the rapture of the church. How do you get prepared? As simple as ABC. You have to admit you're a sinner, believe that Jesus Christ died for you, rose from the dead, and will save you, and call upon him to save you. Let me give you a little three-phrased prayer that you could offer up. You see, God set a standard that we have not been able to live up to. It's called the law, his word. Because we all fail to keep it, we must admit. Here's a little prayer. In the silence of your heart, just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're just admitting what's truth. Just silently say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And then God sent his beloved son who came, lived a perfect, pure life without sin. But God one day said, son, you'll go to the cross because humankind cannot keep my standard. They fail, they sin. You have to be the sacrifice. And he went to the cross. He was sacrificed, buried, and three days later come up out of the grave. You see, he died to take away our sin. He resurrected to prove he was the one qualified. You have to believe that. So in this simple little phrase, Jesus, you save sinners. Say that silently. Jesus, you save sinners. The Bible in Romans 10, 13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that right now. All you have to do is say, Jesus, save me right now. If you've done that, those three steps, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you save sinners. Jesus, save me right now. By the authority of the word, Christ has come to save you. May I have the privilege of closing in prayer? Please, everybody, just a moment. Head bowed, eye closed. I want to close in prayer for anybody who made that decision. I'll not come to you. Nobody will come. We will not embarrass you. But if you did ask Christ, if you prayed that simple little prayer so that I can know and remember you in closing prayer, would you slip your hand up and let me see it? God bless you, sir. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Others upstairs, God bless you, sir. Father, as pastor comes to conclude this invitation time, I pray for those who, by the uplifted hand, indicated they've asked Christ to save them. Give them the knowledge of what has happened, the strength to live for you, the courage to let others know about it. Thank you for what has happened. May it all be done for your glory. When Jesus was ascending to heaven, After his resurrection, in the book of Acts, the angel said to the people who were gathered around who were looking, said, men of Galilee, and if I may change it, I would say this, men and women and young people of Calvary, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The same Bible that prophesied that Jesus would be born 
be crucified and die would rise again. It's the same Bible that is prophesying that he will come again. The purpose of Bible prophecy is not to gain more insight or information or enthusiasm about what we know, but rather that our lives might be changed, that we might prepare our hearts for Christ. He is coming again. And um, it is our desire and our heart here that no one who comes within the range of this ministry would go from here without having a relationship with Jesus Christ that would guarantee to them that when Christ returns, he's returning for you to take you to be with himself. So I want to encourage those of you who indicated this morning that um, you want to have that kind of a relationship with Christ uh, to meet with one of our pastors here right immediately following the service. We'd like to talk to you about this decision that you've made in your life. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for this day, for your servant, for the message that has been brought to us, for the urgency of the message. We recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any moment. We know that the urgency, therefore, is with respect to where our hearts are at. So, Lord, I pray that that, um, our hearts, all of our hearts in here, might be right with God. We might have a relationship with Christ who died for us, that we might be with him for all eternity. Thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.